who can be us? For he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or famine, or nakedness, danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And now before we open God's word, I'm gonna teach you the one prayer we should pray more often than we do. And that prayer is, dear God, Thank you. Amen. You can be seated. Sometimes that's the best thing to say to all that God has done and is doing for us. Thank you, Lord. Well, if you'll open your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 21. Two weeks ago, we examined how in verses 27 through 36, the, the, the people in Jerusalem, in Acts 21, the people in Jerusalem were regarding Paul as an enemy when in fact he was a friend. Two weeks ago, we made the case that essentially that passage is pointing us to this idea that when we mistake our friends to be our enemies, our downfall is certain. Everything gets ruined when we start doing that. And in this particular case, Paul was most certainly a friend. He says in Romans 9, uh, my conscience uh, affirms in the Holy Spirit, I am not lying. I myself could wish that I were cursed off and cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, the people of Israel. So he was their friend. He was there to care for their physical needs. He was there to care for their spiritual needs. And they saw this friend as an enemy and they struck out at him. Verse 30 of chapter 21 of Acts says, then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple and at once the gates were shut. We're gonna to talk today about what follows after this movement against Paul's life in verse 30. And the first thing we see in the first point of our sermon is we see Paul and the cops. Paul and the cops. We pick up in verse 31, which is our first introduction into something we're gonna see for the rest of the book of Acts. Time and time again for the next several chapters, all the way through the end of the book, we're gonna see Paul's interaction with the Roman legal system escalating from one degree to another as he finally makes his way all the way up to a trial before Caesar himself. You know, when I was a kid, I was the bad combination of very daring and very clumsy. And so it, it quickly became the case that, that not, not too long into my childhood, the ER, the local emergency room, knew me by name. When I walked in, they're like, oh, there's Chris. What do you do this time? And also, I, you know, my parents, poor finances, like just throughout all of that, I mean, just can't imagine how many copays I cost them through the years. I was thinking about how 
in my years of pastoring, there's one thing worse than being known by the local ER, and that's being known by name by the local police, right? Being known by name by the local police, by the local courthouse, by the legal system. And by the time we get done with Paul in Acts, man, this guy is like known. Everybody's like, oh, you're that guy. You're the guy. So look at verse 31 with me, and you'll kind of see what, I, what I'm starting to, to see as we move our way through Acts, beginning in verse 31. And they were seeking to kill him, and as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. Just real quickly, when I hear tribune, I think of a newspaper, but that was an officer in the Roman army. I think he commanded somewhere around 100 folks or more than that, actually, I believe. And he, he would have, from his vantage point in Jerusalem, been able to see this uprising kind of stir. And so he comes down to assess yet another riot breaking out in Jerusalem. Verse 32, he at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. So you've got all the cops and the mob. And the cops are trying to understand what did Paul do to deserve all of this uproar. <laughs> one of the funny things we see in Paul's interaction with the Roman legal system is this is very much a you are guilty until you prove you're innocent kind of a deal. Like, like whenever Paul stirs up a crowd, he gets beaten for it, even if it's not his fault, you know. And so the police come and they question Paul, they question the crowd. They can't get anywhere though because the mob is too unruly and loud. And verse 35 says, and when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd for the mob of people followed crying out, away with him. So one of the things that I've begun to ask as I've projected out sort of the end point for the book of Acts study is, why does Luke spend so much time, why is there so much detail at toward the end of the book, you know, easily six chapters worth of content about Paul interacting with guys like this tribune and guys like, uh, you know, Festus, Felix, and the governors and the legal system. Like, what's, what's the idea here? Well, the basic plot line for the next several chapters is, on the one hand, you have a group of lawless men and sometimes a mob who are trying to kill Paul. And on the other hand, you've got a group of people representing the law of the land who wind up saving him, but they mostly just save him because it's their job. And if they don't do it, they're gonna get in trouble. Okay, so, so it's not like, and this, I think this is very helpful because we are dealing as a culture with how to view law enforcement, rule of law, and so on and so forth. It is not as if, when the, because the Bible talks about this a ton, uh, it is not as if as we make our way through this section, there's anything of like anything close to a romanticization of law enforcement. People in law enforcement in the book of Acts are not romanticized. And I think that's a very important thing to say. Um, because often they're viewed as sort of like flawed, at least somewhat flawed. But what the Bible is extremely for is the rule of law, right? So, so you don't see law enforcement romanticized, but you do see the rule of law consistently appreciated. And 
one of the major plot lines that we'll see in the book of Acts from this point forward is how time and time again, it is the rule of law that allows Paul to escape one mob after another mob after another mob. And so you just have this simple sort of literary device occurring in the book of Acts, and that is the mob versus the rule of law. And I feel like that's a very relevant thing to think about in our day and age. The way the Bible deals with this, in particular the book of Acts, is it says something like this. The system is corrupt, and the system is morally broken. There's a point down the road where Paul gets arrested and detained, well, he's detained by one official for about two years because that official is hoping that Paul will offer him a bribe. In this story, Paul is arrested simply because he is accused. And he's almost beaten, not because he's presumed guilty, but because that's just the way people ask questions back then. The, tri- the tribune says, let's examine him by flogging. I'm glad we're not doing as much of that these days. Let's, let's figure out what he knows by whipping him, right? So, so there's no romantization of, of law enforcement, per se, in, in the scriptures at all. But there is this, for all of its failings, the broken system is better than a mob. The rule of law is better than lawlessness and so forth. And this lines up exactly with how Jesus and Paul viewed Judaism and the Gentiles. The Jewish system was deeply corrupt, but at least it had some semblance of order. And so time and time again, when Paul talks about the Jews and the Gentiles, he does not say they're on even footing. He says the Jews have an advantage for they've been given the oracles of God. So there's this common misconception that that chaos and order are two ditches and they're both equally bad or that legalism and licentiousness are two ditches and they're both equally bad. That's not actually how the Bible presents it. The Bible says that anytime there's order, anytime there's law, there will be corruption. But that rule of law is always to be preferred over the anarchy that would ensue if you just got rid of it entirely. So the way this is sort of presented, I think, in in the next six chapters is we should have gratitude for the rule of law and we should be careful to make sure that insurrectionists have a plan to replace what they propose to tear down. Everything that happens in the New Testament happens during a period of time which the historians refer to as Pax Romana, which is the peace of Rome. And it's a 200-year period commencing from the ascension of Caesar Augustus all the way down to Marcus Aurelius in 180 AD, in which the five good emperors ruled over Rome. They weren't good emperors. They were just more consistent than your average warlord. And, and they were just more consistent than your average warlord. They were, they were less capricious, less random, right? And so because of that, this, this theme emerges in which the gospel can grow out on this thing that is corrupt, this system that is the rule of law. So that's definitely, uh, it's definitely one of those things where as you read through the rest of the Acts, you're like, why is this being brought up over and over and over again? Why is this such a thing? It's like, well, in one respect, because it's just, it's, it's just this common thing of the mob versus the rule of law. And neither of those are good in and of themselves. It's just they're not equally as bad. So we have Paul and the cops. That's part of our text. And then the other part of our text is Paul and the crowd. 
And in beginning in chapter 22, well, at the end of chapter 21, Paul asked the tribune, hey, can I speak to the crowd? And there's some confusion there, but the cop eventually says, yeah, you can, you can speak to the crowd. And this is where we'll, we'll spend most of our time this morning examining. Beginning of chapter 22, Paul addresses the crowd, verse one, brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner, the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. Verse four, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women as the high priests and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them, I received letters to the brothers and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those who were also there and bring them, into, bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. Verse six, as I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me, and we came into Damascus. And one Ananias, I'm verse 12 now, and one Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise up, rise and be baptized. Wash away your sins, calling on his name. Verse 17. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, uh, your witness was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And here in verse 22, the next verse, something very tragic, but extremely applicable to all of us. Sometimes when we read a big chunk of scripture, we kind of zone out. Well, here's, here's your moment to zone back in. Verse 22, up to this word, they listened to him. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. The phrase, up to this word, they listened to him, really jumps out because it means something like, there's a chance that me as someone who claims to believe in God could stop listening to him 
if he started to say things I didn't like to hear. Right? That's, that's the scary part about that. Is people who are zealous for God and zealous for the law, there's this hidden um, line in the sand that they didn't even maybe, maybe know about. That when Paul said the magic words, which we'll look at in a moment, they were done. They were fully triggered. You know, people make fun of the whole trigger warning thing, but I mean, as someone who has walked with a lot of people who have been abused and things like that, I actually think there's some utility in letting people know in advance, hey, we're going to talk about something that's very painful because people really have been hurt deeply and struggle still over some of the things they've experienced in their past. So I'm not a big make fun of trigger warning kind of thing. But right now, it's clear that they are triggered. They, they up to this point, are listening, and then something Paul says, it's just, that's it. And not only, not only do they stop listening, they're ready to kill him, and they are plugging their ears and throwing dirt up in the air, and like they're, they're, they're fundamentally triggered. And unfortunately, what they seem to be triggered by is, is the, 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 the nasty idea that they aren't God, <laughs> that God's free to do what God wants to do, so on. Um, they're triggered by the reality of their own smallness, I think we could see. The thing about this that at a broad level, before we get into the specifics is, is there a rhetorical line in the sand? Is some, could God say something to me that would cause me to be, nope, I'm done? I, I think there probably are things like that, unfortunately. I, I hope not. I don't want that to be true. I remember one time I was uh, flying back from a very, very difficult, raining time in Zambia, and I read the end of uh, John 21, where Jesus tells Peter, um, you know, when you were younger, you went where you went, wanted to go, but when you're older, they'll bind your hands and take you where you don't want to go, and I remember just being mad for Peter, and potentially for myself at the Lord in that moment. I was triggered partly because I was super tired. But, but I was just set, as I sat on the, the runway, getting ready to leave country after I'd been serving there for quite some time, I just felt like God was so unfair that he would let someone serve him their whole life and then end it that way. And I, I very quietly threw a little fit in my seat. And God really saved me out of that situation because one of my team, people on my team needed emergency kind of medical care. It wasn't serious, but she passed out. This young girl that I was responsible for passed out and on the plane. And so God like saved me from my blasphemous, no God talk by just forcing me to take care of, you know, a 21-year-old girl who forgot to drink water the last four days, you know. And God really bailed me out of that because there was this moment where my heart was just so ugly and so 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 surprisingly ugly. Look at what I had just done. I just spent more than a month helping start an orphanage for AIDS-affected orphans in Zambia, and now I'm on this plane, and I just tell God, like, no, no. Well, that's where we see these folks. And I tell you my personal story because it surprised me that that was in me. 
it surprised me that there was just this no, this rhetorical line in the sand. And the weird thing about this is, is that the lines themselves change. You know, what, what was acceptable to say 15 years ago is no longer acceptable for a lot of people. And they didn't have this line 15 years ago, but now they do because they've been influenced by culture and so on and so forth. And it just makes you wonder, do I have a line now that I didn't have 15 years ago? Have I been influenced by culture, by my own comfort? But have I become more resistant to God in some respects where I still have the outward shell of being someone who's all about God, but inwardly, like, the lines have shifted. And if he were to ask me to do something now, I always said yes to 15 years ago, now I'd say no. But I don't know that about myself because he's not saying it. You know, this is the problem. So what was offensive to them? Well, most commentators agree that their reaction came, as Paul said, that Jesus had told him to go to the Gentiles. The last two things Jesus says in our text are, Jerusalem is not gonna believe you. Paul kind of argues and says, well, they all know how much I've been changed. They all know my testimony. And Jesus says, arise and go to the Gentiles. And it seems that that was the triggering sentence. And why would that be it? Why would that be the line in the sand for these folks? Again, there's no predicting where someone's line is. That would not strike me as especially triggering, but I don't have the full baggage that they do. Most commentators agree that that the people of Israel saw this as a threat to their status as God's chosen people. It's like God suddenly says, I can choose anyone anywhere. The first church that I pastored was in a town that was really basically dead. I I wrote dying here in my notes, but it was basically dead. And it was once a a town where the railroad stopped, where where the train stopped from Chicago. And it's on the way to St. Louis, and it would stop at this in this town. And so during that time, the town was somewhat thriving, and then the train stopped stopping there. And you can imagine how the city fathers in that moment would have, when they found this out, they would have freaked out. There was no industry there. It, there was nothing there, but it, it, it was a town that existed for the purpose of connecting a train from one place to another place. And you can imagine the kind of panic that that, and I think that might be way of thinking about how these folks in Jerusalem feel. They're realizing that now for a person to be saved, the train doesn't have to go through the temple. They're becoming the radiator springs of theology. That rings a bell. And so they seem to be enraged with this idea that now the Gentiles are treated as equals. And such a thing like that would immediately remove their ground for boasting. You know, before, if you wanted to go to Yahweh, you had to go through Jerusalem. But now, a person could just go to the thing Jerusalem always symbolized, which was a person, meaning the king of peace, which is what Jerusalem even means. Jerusalem was just a stand-in symbol for the person, Jesus Christ. And now Jesus Christ is Jesus Christ, and you can get to him through the Spirit. So that's probably what got them so angry, so angry to the point where they refused to listen anymore. And I think the question now is just, what do you suppose your line in the sand would be? What could God say to you that would cause you to react in a similar fashion? 
Of course, they didn't, they didn't acknowledge that they were stopped. They, that they, they didn't say, God has just said something to me, therefore I will stop listening to him. They, they said, no, no, we still listen to God. This guy's just not speaking godly stuff, right? We said two weeks ago, it's really a dangerous thing when you stop your ears when God is speaking and to not know, as Jesus says, the day of your visitation and to not recognize the things that make for peace. And what you've got here are people who are done listening. And the commentators talk about this, the gates being closed as sort of this final rejection of Jesus Christ in this passage. Because the words that they were infuriated at if you look in your Bible, I mean, if you have a printed Bible, those words are in red in your printed Bible. Those are, those are Jesus' words to Paul. And so in this particular case, sometimes you run away from words like that, and other times you drive the person who's saying them away from you. And this is the thing they really have to be thoughtful of. Proverbs 18.1 says, whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all judgment. Have you ever been in a grocery store and saw someone you really do not want to talk to and skipped an aisle? Honestly, guys, like in all seriousness, there are probably areas where you're, we could be doing that to God. There are conversations we're avoiding, discussions we're putting off, areas of thought we're trying to isolate our minds from going to because we do have some lines in the sand. 2 Timothy 4.3, Paul predicts that even those in Timothy's church will not be able to endure sound teaching, but will assemble for themselves teachers who don't cross their own rhetorical lines in the sand. So in the Gospels, you've got many examples of this kind of thing, but the one that jumps out to my memory is the rich young ruler and the, the sad thing about the rich young ruler is, is he appears on the front end to be so willing and so eager, right? He goes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Like he seems exactly the opposite of someone who would ever plug their ears and say, no. Jesus gives him a list of things to do that are kind of all the things that, that were, they're sort of generic like, here's the generic things that all Jews must do. And the rich young ruler responds, all these things I've done since my youth. But then Jesus says something new, and this new thing is directed specifically at his sin. He says, one thing you lack. Sell all you have and give it to the poor. And then you will have riches in heaven. And that was his line. A guy who so, seems so obedient and willing, proactively going to Jesus and saying, what must I do? He had a line. He had a thing that when Jesus said that to him, he said, no, no bueno, not going there. This is really something that I think when the Bible talks about fear of the Lord, it means things like this. It means like what I read in Psalm 139 this morning. Search me, O Lord, and know me, and see if there's any unclean way in me. And begin to analyze your own behavior and saying, am I acting right now like someone who has a, a rhetorical line in the sand? A am I in any way 
potentially harboring something that I'm like, nope, can't talk about that, won't go there, won't do this. Well, here's three promises in the text I think really bring conviction and comfort in their proper doses. And two of the promises are sort of like in the text implicitly and one's explicit. The first one is, is that this is all happening during Pentecost, right? We've talked about that a little bit. What was Pentecost? Well, originally it's the harvest festival. It's the, it's the festival of the first fruits or something similar to that kind of idea. But over the years, the Jews began to celebrate Pentecost uh, and lining it up with Moses receiving the Ten Commandments. So Passover was freedom from Egypt. Pentecost was receiving the law. And they began to celebrate Pentecost as sort of the law is almost like our harvest. The law is our fruit. The law is our food. And it, it works. You can see that kind of the imagery works. And they had begun celebrating at that for, for a long time. By the time we get to the New Testament, that theme had been around for quite some time. That in addition to celebrating the harvest, we remember when Moses received the law. And what's interesting is, is that all the debates and controversies regarding Paul in chapter 21 all have to do with his position related to the law and his position related to Moses, who is named explicitly in chapter 21 as well. One of the cool things that happened, if you've been here for a while, you'll hear me say, God is the perfect storyteller who writes in the ink of reality. And this is one of those moments we see that so clearly. God decided at the festival, people were celebrating the receiving of law to write his law on his believers' hearts through the Holy Spirit. As Moses ascended Mount Sinai, ascended up, received the law, and there were three signs of the law, speech, fire, and wind. And Moses receives the law with speech, fire, and wind. And now God, the master storyteller, has arranged after the ascension of Jesus to bring his disciples into the upper room and in the upper room, the Holy Spirit would come down with sound, fire, and wind, and he would do what had been promised all along in the Old Testament. He would write their law, his law, on their hearts. So for instance, Jeremiah 31, 33. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God, and they will be my people. So I do believe we should all have a sense of fear and humility about the possibility that we will tell God no. But one of the cures of our own stubbornness is the work that God has done through the Holy Spirit to turn our hearts of stone into hearts of flesh and to write his word on our hearts. It doesn't mean that Christians won't have rhetorical lines in the sand where, where, where at periods of time they refuse counsel, they, they are deceived, they become stubborn. It doesn't mean that Christians won't do those things. It just means that they can't stay that way. Because those who are really his will repent of their stubbornness and will eventually listen to what he's telling them to do. So one promise implicit in the text is and this is all happening, celebrating a time in which God has written his law on his people's hearts. 
And so one of the blessings is, I know that if I am stubborn, I shouldn't ever give in to that. I shouldn't ever resist him. But I do know that my God is my father. He has put his law on my heart. And when I tell him no, as a mentor once told me, God doesn't fail us as children. When he gives us a test, he doesn't fail us. He just makes us take the test again and again and again and again. The good news is, is that God is more stubborn than I am. And all of his stubbornness, because he's perfect and beautiful and holy and full of love, all of his stubbornness works for my good and for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Well, there's a second way too. And that is just simply, we're reminded of the way Paul started and the way Paul ended. And we're just reminded, not only does God write his law on our hearts, but God disciplines those whom he loves. You know, a lot of people, their first salvation experience, the the first discipline experience from God and their first salvation experience is kind of the same experience. That's where Paul was. Like Paul didn't get saved and then experience the discipline of the Lord. He, they, they both came together. He's on his way to persecute the church in Damascus and the Lord Jesus appears and blinds him and forces him into a period of extreme vulnerability and humility. And that's all found from, you know, like verse six all the way down to 11 where Paul's going through the specifics of his conversion. And honestly, this is another good news, another piece of good news. Not only does he write his law upon our hearts, he disciplines those whom he loves. And so if we are stubborn, if we have lines in the sand, God will in his fatherly kindness for his own people exercise discipline over us, cause our lives to be not so great so that we will take the test again. And the third promise we see in this passage is is, uh, even more explicit. That is, his sheep hear his voice. Throughout the text, in verse 7 and 8 and 10 and 18, 21, Paul recites the words of Jesus. And indeed, it's the words of Jesus, as I said a minute ago, that caused the people to freak out and revolt. Well, there's this weird thing about being a believer, and that is, you can be often puzzled and confused and bewildered and maybe even scandalized by the words of Jesus. The disciples would sometimes say, this is a hard teaching, who can accept it? Jesus can really confuse you. He can scare you. but his sheep know his voice. And there are many times, as we've talked about before, where at the end of the day, the only thing that keeps us from plugging our ears and running away is something that the disciples said to Jesus. Where else can we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. And really what you see in Jerusalem on this sad occasion is a bunch of people who had no respect for Jesus. That, that's why they were so able to plug their ears and want to kill the messenger. They literally just were at the point where like, we don't, we, we don't care what Jesus has to say. Of course, if you're a follower of Christ and he's written his on your hearts and you've experienced the loving discipline of your father, like when, Jesus, when Jesus is speaking, it's not always easy to hear it. It's not always easy to receive it well. You might need to take the test a few times, but in the end, 
Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. And he says, I'm the good shepherd and I will hold them on my hand and nothing will be able to snatch them out of my hand, not even our own stubbornness. Well, you know, I was thinking this week about the two points, the two main points, Paul and the cops, Paul and the crowd. It's kind of like, what? why would these two things be fitting together like this over and over again in the book of Acts? One of the things I thought about is this. If the rule of law in Rome offered some peace and security, how much more does the rule of God's word offer peace to those who obey it. If the rule of law corrupted, prone to corruption, prone to sin, if the rule of law in Rome, exercised by the five good emperors, which were just the five least bad emperors, right? If the rule of law led to peace in the world, how much more will the rule of God's word when we simply say yes, how much more will the rule of God's word bring peace into our lives, into our families, into our country? And I just want to leave you, as far as the sermon goes, with one of the beautiful pieces. This will be a great week to read Psalm 119 again. It's been a while. It's Psalm 119, verse 29 through 32. David prays, put false ways far from me and graciously teach me your law. I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I have set your rules before me. I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. Let me not be put to shame. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. Let me pray for us. Lord God, we are confident in your Holy Spirit's ability to change lives. And we are not confident in any other thing. Uh, It's all been tried. Persuasive speech, wisdom, excessive authority, whatever, it's all been tried. Lord, we are convinced that the only thing that changes hearts from hearts of stone into hearts of flesh is your Holy Spirit. And so God, now as we've done a general sketch of this passage and identified what seems to be the main problem of the crowd, we ask that through your Holy Spirit, you would show us, Lord, either right now or this week, you would show us anything, God, to which we are especially prone to being uninterested in listening to you in the area. God, sometimes it can just, it can be the smallest thing that you know, Lord, could become something much bigger. So I pray through your Holy Spirit, you would help us to see how soft our heart is to you right now. You would give us, Lord, the, the prayer of David. Enlarge our hearts, Lord. Teach us your commandments. Show us your will. Soften us, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, for communion, 
There's another passage like that Jeremiah passage that I read, found in Ezekiel 37. And God offers this incredible promise associated with his new covenant. I just want to read this to you before you come and partake of the Lord's table. They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions, but I will save them from all the backslidings in which they have sinned and will cleanse them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. My servant David shall be king over them and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever and David my servant shall be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. But Jesus Christ has come, taken on flesh. Though he was equal to God, submitted himself to be a servant all the way up to dying for you and I for our sins. So Jesus Christ, before he died, offered this table as a way for you and I in the midst of all the potential ways that it could go wrong to say, here's why it's gonna go right this is my body and this is my blood and I give it for you. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, another promise embedded, this is the way you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So today, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you've placed your faith in him for the remission of your sins, make him your Lord and Savior, would you come forward and participate in the table today?
stand and sing together. Sacrifice, we're invited. 
see the wisdom of His faith in the mystery of grace. Every age and every race, we're united. our Savior, the work forever and today we just ask that you would text the word guest to this number 33777 and we'll be able to follow up with you from that um, and if you haven't given physically in the box in the back but would like to give electronically there's a number for you to do that as well announcements are pretty simple this week guys we actually are going to cancel our men's meeting for this particular week we've got a couple other meetings that are kind of taking priority in the building at the time and but youth group will be here and then also youth will be meeting uh, Friday, April 29th uh, for Bonfire and S'mores. So if you have a, if you are a teenager or have a kid in the youth group, be aware of those dates. I just want to leave you with kind of the, the classic benediction from the book of Jude. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. 
and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. We're dismissed.